everybody and welcome to another episode of Lead Like You Give a Damn, where I speak with leaders and leadership experts who have cracked the code on leading with authenticity, purpose and effectiveness. I'm your host, Dave McKeown, and my guest today is John Rennie. John is the co-founder, president and CEO of Peak Demand Inc., a premier manufacturer of critical components for electrical utilities. He is a former US Navy nuclear submarine officer who made seven deployments during the end of the Cold War. He has also led eight manufacturing businesses for three global companies, and he's the author of three best-selling leadership books and the host of the podcast Deep Leadership. Listen as we talk about the leadership lessons he gained from serving on a nuclear submarine, the importance of responsibility and vulnerability in leadership, and what it means to let people fail. Make sure you're subscribed to get the latest episodes of the show as they come out. Let me know if you have any questions, and as always, please enjoy the show. Well, hey, John, thanks so much for being here with me today. How are you? Hey, I'm doing really good, Dave. Good to talk with you again. Yeah, I'm excited that we get to swap roles and this time you have to do all the hard work and thinking. (laughs) So, John, I'm super curious in your experience how you were able to transition all of the lessons that you learned serving as an officer on a nuclear submarine towards leadership in a corporate world. What is the crossover there? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It didn't happen, you know, overnight. I, in mm. fact, I just thought I was like every other person who went into the corporate world. I worked 22 years in with three global companies and I ran eight different manufacturing plants during that time. Uh-huh. And I thought I was just like everybody else. You know, I was just a leader doing, trying to do my best in the organization. But then, you know, over time, I realized that the unique experiences I had, you know, spending two years of my life under the ocean, you know, leading 24 seven, you know, never having a break, just always being in a, very present role, very, you know, no way to escape, you know, a Mm. bad day or a bad employee or a bad colleague or a bad boss. Those actually gave me really good skills to leading in organizations. I mean, just the ability to get along with people that have different opinions that you have, uh, the Mm. ability to get the most out of every employee, regardless of, you know, where they're at, you know, spending time with employees, getting to know them personally, all these things I learned in that weird world of leading people under the ocean for, you know, all total, I was on the USS Tennessee for five years, but of, of that five years, two years of that was actually under the water. Yeah. And you must have had to develop a, just a great amount of patience and focus, right? Like just that inability to escape. I know that for so many of us, you know, just that ability to walk outside and take a bit of a breath of fresh air and kind of look at things anew is, is really helpful for us. How do you go about developing that sort of patience that you need? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, you know, I didn't necessarily have that much patience as, <laughs> as an officer. It's very much a high pressure. I mean, it's a high stakes environment. I mean, mm. we were, you know, this was during the Cold War. So we were talking about nuclear weapons pointed back and forth. We were talking about Soviet ships and submarines we were trying to avoid. So it was very high, a very tense situation. So it was mm. really hard. So I think the best things, uh, you know, what I learned over those times is having a good group of peers that you could sort of shut the door and vent and just say, what would you do in this situation? Right. I think that's where I learned to you know, where some people would disappear and I need time away just to relax. I probably went to go to my peers a lot more because of my experiences on the submarine. You go to somebody and say, look, I'm dealing with this situation. Have you ever dealt with it? What kind of advice do you have for me? It's because there wasn't a chance to really get away and be alone. There was no alone. On right. The 
Yeah. Gosh, yeah. And then when you made the transition away f- from that towards the a more corporate world, what were some of the challenges that you had in those early stages? I think the big thing for me, especially going into a large global corporation was I didn't feel like we had a, a unified or a, a united purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have a mission that I understood. So what I found was every person was in a department kind of working on their own thing and they had their own personal goals, they had their own departmental goals. And it seemed like the overall overarching mission was foggy to me, right? Mm. I saw that people would, you know, one one of the things I talk about in my writings is that, uh, you know, on a submarine, the enemy was outside the hull, right? It was, Mm. you know, thousands of pounds of seawater trying to get into the submarine and our job was to keep it out, right? (laughs) And you have the, you know, the Soviet boat out there that you're trying to avoid, right? Mm. So the enemy we knew was outside the hull and we all knew our mission, which was to, you know, protect the country and get home safely, right? We knew what our mission was, you know, and we knew who the enemy was. When you get into corporate, very large, complex organizations, it's hard to know who the enemy is, right? And it's hard to know what the mission is. So those things were murky to me. And so when I got a chance to lead my own operations, so I was the senior person at these, you know, remote manufacturing sites, I made sure it was very clear what our purpose was, what our shared purpose was, what our mission was, and the fact that the enemy is outside of the four walls of our manufacturing plant. They're not inside. So building unity and towards a common purpose was something I really found myself doing more and more of as I had the chance to lead in, you know, in a very complex organization, but I had my own ship, if you will, that I could run in the way we ran a submarine. Right. And, you know, you go back, you're saying that when you're on the boat, the mission was twofold, protect the country and get home safely. And, you know, you think about what a good mission statement is supposed to do. It's supposed to anchor you, give you that that North Star and and help you evaluate the decisions that you're about to make against that mission statement. Does it bring us closer to it or take us further away? And there's not, (laughs) you don't get much more of a clear, you know, twofold mission statement there. I can really imagine how that is just such a helpful thing to help guide those decisions that you're going to make on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the thing is that the big takeaway I had from the Navy was that, you know, it's not just, it's twofold, right? When you were in charge on the submarine, it was the mission and the people. So mm. the mission was, you know, for us, it was strategic deterrence, right? To make sure we were ready to go if, if needed. And the second thing was the people, make sure people got home safely, that they got mm. home alive, right? Mm-hmm. So it was the mission and the people. And so as I've gone through my corporate career, it was always the same thing, mission and the people. How do I accomplish the mission and do the best for the people that are working in the group that I'm responsible for? for. Right. And when you got into those early leadership roles and you started crafting that purpose or the mission, you know, tell me a little bit about that process. Was that just specifically for your team? Was it something at a higher level? Because I know a lot of leaders get a little stuck on this because they begin to say, well, is it the organization's mission I need to work on? Like, how do I do that for my team? How does it connect up to that? Like, how do you go about doing that successfully? Yeah. So I'll talk about it from my first manufacturing plant, because I think I was in department leadership roles, and then I eventually got my first plant at 32 years old. And Mm. that's when I really noticed the us and them attitude that I had in this organization. I had shop floor people doing one thing. I had salary people doing another thing. They didn't have a lot of common experiences. They didn't have a common view of the organization. So I knew right away that I had to build this, you know, common understanding of what our mission was and what we were trying to do in the world. And one of the things I found out early on was that, you know, as I talked to people on the shop floor, I asked them, what do you do? And they said, well, I plate this part. I drill this part. I make sure these parts are aligned. So they knew what their job was, but they didn't know what that 
did, you know, mm. and I asked him, I said, well, well, do you know what we make here is like, I think it's circuit breakers. I, okay, but do you know where those are used? And people didn't really connect what they were doing, right. to what the mission was in the organization. So part of it was sort of educational. I had to sort of teach the entire workforce, like, here's what we do here. Not only are, we, are you, you know, making plating parts and building parts and connecting parts, you know, we're building a product that keeps the lights on. You're supplying electricity to hospitals, to schools, to shopping malls, right. you know, and so connect them to a bigger purpose than just you're making a, you know, a part here, you know, or you're bolting this on. It's actually, you know, connecting them to that bigger purpose. And it's interesting how, as people understood more and more what they were doing and why it was so important, you know, you, you got a sense that people felt like they, you know, they were connected to something bigger than themselves. And, mm. and all of a sudden there was a sense of pride. The people were going home and telling their spouses about what they did and why it was so important. You know, we as humans, we want to belong to something that has a greater purpose than just ourselves. And if you can mm. connect your organization to what it's really doing in the world, which is what I did in those early days, it changed the outcome for all of us and us, you know, thinking about what our mission was. Mm. And then another thing we did was kind of break down those barriers between the office and the salary people. And we did that through a program called uh, Fridays on the Floor, where the first Friday of every month, the salary people went on the shop floor and worked in different places on the shop floor, where we shared common experiences. The employees mm in the office got to see what was really wrong with equipment or procedures or how things were really done. And then the salary people got to learn what the people did in the office. Like, I just, I thought you just sat in your cubicle all day. I had no idea <laughs> right. that you were trying to collect money from customers that weren't paying us. You know what I mean? We, right. we developed a shared understanding of each other's roles in the business. And then we connect personally. And so it built this bond between the us and them kind of went away over time. So a mm -hmm. shared purpose, common experiences, and then we kind of changed just the whole mindset in the organization. Right. And then what about that notion of the enemy? I mean, did you specifically name that or was it more just, hey, the enemy isn't within us? It's not that us versus yeah. them perspective. So this is kind of cool. And, and I always say, put a face to your enemy. And I actually talk about this in my book that's coming out here shortly, is that I actually, one of the things I did was our major competitor was Eaton Cutler Hammer was, you know, Eaton was our, our big competitor. And so I found a picture on the internet of who the CEO of Eaton was. I don't know what his name was, but I, I figured out a way to Photoshop his face on Darth Vader's, you know, underneath Darth Vader's mask. And I actually put that up in all employee meetings. I said, this guy's is our enemy. Your enemy is not marketing. It's not sales. It's not engineering. It's not the shop floor. It's not QA. The enemy is this guy. I can't remember his name, but you know, this is our enemy. And it was always like a visual reminder of who our enemy was. It wasn't inside the four walls. It was outside the four walls. So I think, you know, leaders can do that. When you see a lot of infighting and a lot of finger pointing and a lot of, you know, just things not getting done because there's all sorts of internal battles. It, part of the problem is they don't see the enemy is outside the four walls. They see it is, is inside the four walls. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then as you progress through your career, what were some of the biggest leadership shifts that you personally had to go through? Yeah. I would say the big one was, you know, when I got my first plant, I was young. I was 32. I was the youngest plant manager in that plant's history. And I really felt like I had to have all the answers. Like somebody put me in this job and I better know what I'm doing. I better have right. all the answers. And I think over time and, you know, over doing this for 30 years is I've realized that 
the leader doesn't have to have the answers. In fact, it's more important that he has good questions and has the, the ability, he or she has the ability to stop and listen to the ideas of the people around them. And I think, you know, it was great to learn that over time because I really felt in the beginning like, oh my gosh, they put me in a role. I don't really know what I'm doing. You know, this could be terrible. Everyone's relying on me. But, but you know, it's, it's all about, you know, I always say that the collective wisdom of a team is so much greater than the ideas of one manager. So, you know, I learned that over time and eventually I put less pressure on myself to be perfect and to have all the answers and more about engaging the team and get the ideas from the people. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's just so hugely important because it, when we show up and expect to know everything and jump in and save the day, it really restricts the ability for the folks under us to grow and develop and to become the best version of themselves. And it makes us the bottleneck and it just can end up leading to frustration for us and, and overwhelm for them. So then tell me, spent a lot of your career then in these leadership roles. And then at some point you decided to step aside and start your own business, right? Peak Demand is, is something that you stepped out and, and co-founded. What was the thought process there? What made you want to move away from kind of more corporate perspective towards actually starting something on your own? Well, you know, it's funny. I went, I left one corporate job. I was there for 15 years and I went to another one thinking the grass would be greener. And what I found <laughs> was it wasn't. And so it was at that point that my last corporate job I was at for about three years. And I was like, I think I'm done with this. Mm. I can't do this anymore. I feel like I have to leave who I am as a leader at the door every morning when I come in and I have to sort of play the game. And I just couldn't play the game any longer. Mm. So we just figured out a way to uh, myself and two co-founders, we figured out a way to, you know, build up a, a business idea, present it to some investors and uh, we got the money to do it. And we started six years ago, we started our manufacturing company called Peak Demand and we supply products, uh, all sorts of different products to the electric utilities around the country. So um, we, you know, had a lot of experience experience doing that, but we thought we could do it better and we are doing it better. So we ship faster than anyone else in the industry. We've added features and benefits that our competition doesn't have. So mm. we beat billion dollar companies all day long, which is kind of exciting and fun. So we are right. definitely pirates. Uh, we're a pirate ship now. We, you know, I used to be on the big Navy and now I'm on a pirate ship and it's a blast. It's a fun thing. It's hard. It's stressful. But all those things I learned in all those years leading other people has really helped in, in the entrepreneurial world a lot. How do you show up as a leader in this more entrepreneurial world compared to larger corporations? Yeah, I think to be honest with you, I feel like I can be more myself and be more real. Like I'll give you an example. I haven't worn business clothes at all, like going into the office. I wear jeans and boots and I wear, you know, and I spend a lot of time on the shop floor. When we're busy, I'm out there making product with everybody. I know everybody's, you know, everything about every one of my employees, their spouses, their kids. Uh, I really know my employees uh, intimately. They're my family. And yeah, it's just, it feels real to me. Like this is the way work should be versus sort of playing a role. Like I was always like a vice president, you know, vice president, general manager kind of role. And you sort of are expected to play a certain role in big companies when you're in those positions. And you spend, you know, countless hours in business reviews and mm. putting together PowerPoint presentations is not spending enough time with people, more time spending a time trying to justify, you know, our jobs and our decisions. And, and so it's, I think it's very freeing to do this entrepreneurial thing. The freedom is great, but I would also say that there is no safety net. So it is is your own money. It is yeah. your own. It's all on you. So there is just no margin for error, but I like it. I enjoy that. So. Right. And are you planning to keep it kind of at a smaller entrepreneurial kind of culture? Or are you looking to grow the business? Like what are your goals for the next few years? 
Yeah, we want to grow. I mean, we, and not only, not just we want to grow. I mean, our customers want to see us grow. They want to see us offering new, more products and, and serving more markets. So yeah, we're going to grow as we can and as it makes sense. You know, one thing I would say this is that we're going to grow with the customers that really respect us and appreciate our value proposition. So one of the things I found with the large utilities is that they don't care about their vendors having this relationship with the vendor. You're like a supplier. It's a part number what they wanted for the lowest price. So they don't necessarily see the value value of quick lead times and, and, you know, kind of the feature benefits that we offer in our products. They don't, they take that for granted. So we're actually going to, we're going to do business with the smaller utilities, which by the way, is the majority of the utilities in the U S mm. that really appreciate our value proposition and they're willing to pay us for it. So I would say that's one of the things we discovered in the last six years is that there is an ideal customer for us that appreciates what we offer. And we're not going to be chasing elephants. We're going to chase rabbits and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and we're going to be fine. So. <laughs> and do you think that there's another level of leadership that you'll need to kick into as you continue to grow? Or do you oh, think yeah. that, that what you've got will kind of, you know, stand you in good stead? You know, that's the problem, you know. So, so for me, my, my most fun was always running a plant of about any, anywhere less than 200 people. That was always my sweet spot. I always loved that. Right. When I got moved up and up in corporate, I ended up running multiple plants and had more than 600 people working for me. And I had general managers working for me. And, and to me, they had all the fun. And I was the one doing PowerPoint presentations. So I would say, right. I don't want to go back to a corporate gig. I still want to be around where, you know, noise is made and hammers are banging and, uh, <laughs> and I can hear a truck backing up. So I would say that, yeah, I mean, you know, if we're up to 100 people, I probably, you know, can keep doing it the way I'm doing it. But beyond that, it gets a little tough. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then at the same time as putting all of this into practice, you're also speaking and writing and recording podcasts all on the concept of leadership and leadership being a people business. So what made you kind of want to start that side portion to the business? You know, I had this unique experience on a submarine, like I said, early in my career, and I applied that to really successful, running successful businesses over the course of the last 20 years. And I just wanted to tell more people about it, tell them the ideas, the things that I learned through those experiences. So, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of people who write books on leadership that are mostly Navy SEALs. It seems like every Navy SEAL has to write a book on leadership. <laughs> right. And I think when you write as a Navy SEAL commanding a group of highly motivated Navy SEALs, that's pretty straightforward, I would say. And I'm not, you know, Jocko, I hope you're not listening, but that's pretty straightforward to motivate a bunch of hard charging Navy SEALs who are the top alpha, you know, warriors in the military. Now right. try to handle a bunch of guys that are on a submarine that don't want to be there, right? right? How do you motivate people to get things done when they don't necessarily want to be there? And they've been out to sea for three months and they're, they just want to get home to their families. They're tired. They don't want to see you anymore. How do you motivate them to get things done? I think reading a book written by someone other than Navy SEAL is probably a little bit more realistic for your leadership scenario. And, and I'm sorry, Jocko, and hope you're not listening. So, <laughs> I mean, I've always felt that, you know, in general leadership books that try to translate from one environment to another, and particularly the one that you just mentioned, it is difficult because it's not the same. I mean, it's totally not the same. You know, you're literally talking about, like you said, highly motivated life or death situation versus people as to your point that are grinding out PowerPoint decks and kind of wondering what it is that they're like, what their overarching purpose is in all of this. And it's just hard to see those connections. And so I'm glad that you've sort of expanded the literature a little bit there. You'd mentioned earlier that you've got a new book coming out soon. Tell us a little bit about that. What's the focus on it? Oh yeah. So, you know, my first book was called I Have the Watch, which was a lot of short, it was basically a number of short stories. And, and a lot of people who have read the book said, this is, book is a little bit like a guided journal. I can read it every morning and get a little piece of information I apply during my day. 
And I thought, well, that's interesting. It wasn't meant to be that way, but yeah. I can see where people are using it that way. So I took that idea, the concept from that book and wrote this book. It's called You Have the Watch. And it's actually a guided journal to take leaders through 50 themes throughout the book. So every week there's a different theme and every day there's a different facet of that theme. So mm -hmm. it's actually a guided journal to take leaders through an entire year of leadership training at their own pace. You know, 15 minutes in the morning, you read through it, you think about it. There's action items for that day. And yeah, and you, and you kind of keep track of, you know, there's places to write down, you know, how you're feeling or what you're learning through the process. So it's a way to reflect on those leadership lessons as well. So it's a way to practice leadership skills and to get better at those leadership skills versus just reading a book or going to one training session or watching a, you know, a TED talk. This is something right. that's going to be with you for an entire year. And so that's my hope for this new book. I love that notion. I think that far too often we expect leaders to become better leaders just by osmosis, you know, just by reading a book <laughs> or sitting and watching a TED talk. And that's a lot like thinking you'll become a better basketball player by watching LeBron James play. And that's just not the case. You got to get out there and you got to practice it. You got to contemplate it and think about it and put stuff into play. So I think that's a fantastic resource that you've developed for folks. So just as we're wrapping up, share with me a little bit about what do you think the, the current landscape for leaders is at the minute? What are some of the challenges and struggles that you're seeing out there and you're helping folks with? So I, the one big thing is this great resignation that we're seeing right here now. And it's like 40% of employees are actually looking for a new job right now. Right. And 53% of those people say it's because of their boss that they're looking for a new job. So, you know, we had a pandemic, we had people sit back and reflect on, you know, work-life balance. Is this what I really want to be doing with my life? You know, what do I really want to be doing with my life? And so a lot of people are thinking about leaving and they're saying upwards of 25% of employees could be leaving companies as they migrate to other companies. So can you imagine losing 25% of your workforce, 25% of the institutional knowledge that you have in your company? It's right. devastating to companies to lose 25%. The cost of rehiring, retraining, the loss of the knowledge, product development, product history, all that is, is it, it could be devastating for companies. And again, it comes right back down to leadership. So what should leaders do, you know, to combat this great resignation? Well, it's being great leaders right? It's being the kind of people that people want to work for. And so a lot of what I write and what other people are writing about how to be a great leader, those things really apply right now. People want to work. They want to belong to an organization that has a mission and a purpose that's bigger than themselves. And they want to work for somebody that cares for them or respects them and wants to help them help bring out their best. So really leadership more than ever is really critical right now. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're seeing it real time that folks are already starting to, to lose up to those numbers. And it's just whenever I talk to my clients, it's like they just keep saying, Dave, I can't get my head above water here because we're trying to rebuild our growth plans. And yet we've got this big goal. And, you know, I think to your point, you've just got to encourage folks to focus on go back to the basics. You know, we're not talking about anything new or surprising here, but what we're saying is it's becoming very, a very acute issue and challenge for you. And you've got to begin to work on those leadership skills so that people feel like they are part of that, something bigger than themselves that, that you you had talked about. And I think right back to the beginning of that discussion, you know, just helping folks be able to stitch together what it is they do every day to the overarching mission of the organization. So yeah. John, where can folks go to find out more about you and your fantastic thoughts on leadership and the new book that's coming out? Yeah, everything is at johnsrenny.com and I have links to social media there and uh, all the books are on there as well. So johnsrenny.com and you can spell John any way you want. And you'll still get there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to put some version of that in the show notes or maybe all versions of that. In the show notes. <laughs> John, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts and your perspectives and your expertise. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it. This has been fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Lead Like You Give a Damn. 
If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about me, the show, or the work that I do, you can go to davemckeown.com and I'll see you next time.